Okay, if you have a Bible, you'd like to turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 21. And I'll read from verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and he was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. The events of this passage took place about 25 to 30 years into the reign of King David. And we're familiar with the wars against the Philistines that took place at the beginning of David's story. And here, decades after David burst onto the scene by killing Goliath, the Philistines were back and there was another giant for David to face. So David led his army into battle once again, just as he had for his entire adult life. Only this time, something was different. David was in his 60s, sort of age when Many of us would be contemplating retirement rather than warfare and leading armies into battle. And David's body, it seems, was no longer up to something as physical as armed combat. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. He grew tired, he was in danger, and he had to be rescued. And when the battle was over, his men told him, you can't do this anymore. You can't lead us into battle any longer. And so this thing, this role, this activity, this type of service that had been so much a part of David's identity as the king who led his army into battle, the thing that he had done with success for most of his life had suddenly been taken away. He couldn't do it anymore. And that's the situation that we can all face at different points in our lives and for different reasons. Many things can leave us suddenly unable any longer to do the thing that we've always done to serve in the way that we've always served. In David's case, it was old age. And through old age or ill health, we can find that suddenly there are things that we're no longer able to do. Retirement or redundancy can suddenly bring an end to a career in which you felt productive and useful and fulfilled. Or in the personal arena, a relationship breakdown or children growing up leaving home can suddenly leave you feeling that you've lost a role or an identity 
that you've had for many years, perhaps even for decades, and it's suddenly not there anymore? What would it have felt like for David to have been told, you can't do this anymore? This role you had is over. How do we feel when we reach those moments? Because that can be a crisis point in your life. Many people will find a situation like this very difficult to handle. People who've been made redundant often struggle with that feeling that they no longer have any value, no longer have self-worth. After retirement, people can lose a sense of purpose and motivation, not knowing what to do with their days any longer. We're familiar with that concept of empty nest syndrome when children have grown up, left home, and parents who for years and years have had that role and that area of service that has taken so much of their life, and suddenly it's no longer there. How do we feel in those situations? Recently, I heard an interview with the former tennis player, Jim Courier, winner of four Grand Slam singles titles, world number one when he was 22 years old. He retired from tennis when he was only 30 years old. And at that point, he suddenly had to find a new career for himself. With many still decades of working life ahead of him and he had to find something else to do. And he said that the hardest thing with that was realizing, having to come to terms with the realization that he would never again be as good at something as he was at playing tennis. He said, it didn't matter what else I did, I was never going to be as good as I was at tennis where I was the world number one. And all of us will reach a point in our lives at which the door closes on the thing that we thought we did the best. Not necessarily better than anybody else, but the thing that you were best at. That thing you felt was your gifting. It felt where you were most able to be of service. And at some point, the door will close on it, just as it did for David. And we can face those same questions that other people like Jim Courier have faced. You know, is there anything left for me to do? Who am I now? What's my identity? And for us as Christians, our jobs, our families, the things that we do in the church are important ways in which we're serving God. They're things where we're bearing fruit for him. If we suddenly reach a point in our lives where we can no longer serve God in the area in which we've been used by him for many years or decades, then we can face that question of whether we'll ever be used by God again. Will we ever be fruitful for God again? At this point, David could have concluded that his useful life was over. He was growing older. He'd just been told, you're too old to do this anymore. He could have concluded his useful life was over. He could have lived out the rest of his life just in idleness or in mourning the loss of the past, wallowing in nostalgia for the days when he was the victorious king in battle and mourning the fact that those days were gone. But in fact, if we turn 
away from the book of Samuel and look at the parallel account of David's life in the book of Chronicles, we find that he didn't respond like that at all. He responded in a very different way. So if we turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, we see there what David did next. The first thing we see is that David began to make plans for the building of the temple. So beginning at verse 2 of 1 Chronicles 22, it says, David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stonecutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails, for the doors of the gates, and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon my son is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. What's interesting about this is that David had intended to build this temple himself many years earlier, but God had told him that he could not do it. How would you react if somebody told you that you couldn't carry out some great project that you really wanted to do, but then suggested that instead you might want to do loads of work to help somebody else do the project, and somebody else get to do this thing that you've really wanted to do. How might you react in that situation? You might naturally say, well, if I'm not, if I'm not gonna actually get to do the project, I'm not gonna put in all the, the hard slog work, gathering all the raw materials and making the nails and getting all the timbers and all the rest of it, just to hand over for somebody else to actually be the one who kind of gets the glory of um, seeing this thing through to completion. But David gave himself to all that very mundane work of preparation, of gathering together all the raw materials and getting everything prepared so that after his death, somebody else would build the temple. And the second thing we then see in this chapter is that David also gave himself to training the next generation specifically his son Solomon. So in verse 11, David addresses Solomon, his son. Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he's spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze, and iron beyond weighing. For there's so much of it. Timber and stone too I provided. To these you must add, you have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number. 
skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. So there's David's training. And we know that David's training was effective, not only because the temple was built, but also it says in that passage, David says to Solomon, may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding. And in the future, after David's death, when Solomon had become king, God told Solomon that he would give him whatever he asked for. And Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge. So discretion, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. He asked for exactly what David had said that he needed. And we can see there, David's training was effective. And Solomon didn't, had not forgotten that lesson. So we see that when David suddenly found himself unable to serve God in the way that he always had in the past, he did not become angry, downcast, or idle. Instead, he devoted himself to preparing future projects and training the next generation. Why was that? What was it about David's mindset that helped him to respond at this moment of crisis in his life in such a positive way? Well, firstly, I think that David had faith that God would make him fruitful in every season of his life, no matter what his circumstances were. We turn to Psalm 92. Maybe David knew this psalm. Maybe David was involved in writing this psalm. We, we don't know. But it's a psalm, I think, reflected his heart. In Psalm 92, in verse 12, it says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Now the message of this psalm is also found in the words of Jesus when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And just as Jesus said, when we abide in him, we will bear fruit. So the psalm says, when we're planted in God, we are always full of sap and green. And it says, we still bear fruit in old age, meaning that there is no season of life, no circumstance of life, in which we are not able to bear fruit for God. Because being in this situation where we find ourselves suddenly no longer able to serve God in some way we've served in the past, to do things we've, we've done in the past, is not confined to any particular stage or age of life, because as I saw, there are many different circumstances, many different points in life where we come to these moments. So when the psalmist is saying they still bear fruit in old age, they're also saying they can bear fruit at any point in life. And so regardless of situations, regardless of circumstances, regardless of age, whatever it may be, we are able to bear fruit for God. And that's because the source of our fruitfulness, that sap to which the psalm refers, 
doesn't come from us. doesn't come from the circumstances of our lives. It comes from Jesus through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. So when we're planted in him, when we abide in him, then we have the source of fruitfulness, the source of being productive for God, the source of being used by God. So when one area in which we had served God and been fruitful for many years is closed off for us, for whatever reason, that doesn't mean that we're no longer able to bear fruit for God because the source of our fruitfulness has not changed. Some of you might recognize the name Corrie ten Boom. You might remember her book, The Hiding Place. If you don't know her story, Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who helped hide Jews in Holland in the Second World War. And she and her family were sent to a concentration camp. But Corrie survived. And for about 30 years after the end of the war, she traveled the world telling her story and preaching the gospel. But what's less well known is that in her 80s, Corrie ten Boom had two serious strokes that left her unable to walk and ultimately unable to speak. Having traveled the world to serve God, she was now confined to her home. But Corrie did not see that as being the end of her ministry, the end of her serving God. She didn't see that this was preventing her from continuing to bear fruit for God. For the final five years of her life, she devoted herself to praying and interceding for people around the world. She was no longer traveling the world in person, but she continued through her prayers to touch lives across the globe. She knew that there was no season in which you cannot bear fruit for God. The second thing that I think made a difference was that David had his eyes on eternity much more than he did on the here and now. David was told that he would not build the temple, and yet he spent his final years preparing for its construction, even though he wouldn't be there to see it. Moses spent decades leading the people of Israel to the promised land, only to be told by God that he himself was not going to enter it. Yet Moses did not at that point resign in disgust and say, well, if I'm not going in, I'm not going to put in all the work of leading this lot any longer. Find somebody else to do that, somebody who is going to go into the promised land. He continued leading them right up to the very border of the land, even though he knew he wasn't going to go in there himself. He was going to die before that happened. David, Moses, many other great figures of the Old Testament persevered even though they knew they were not going to see the promise of God fulfilled in their lifetime. And they did so because they knew that there was an eternity for them beyond this lifetime in which they would see the fulfillment of all of these promises. The book of Hebrews summed up their attitude. In Hebrews 11, 
a chapter in which the sort of lives of many of these great Old Testament figures are referred to and described. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, it said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Moses knew that he would not enter the promised land, but he continued to serve God by leading the people because he knew that the earthly promised land to which they were heading was just a shadow of the real promised land that he would see and that he would enter. David knew that he would not build the temple, but he continued to serve God by preparing for it and training Solomon, who would build it, because he knew that this bricks and mortar temple was just a shadow of a glorious and eternal temple that he was building and that he would see. And this is the perspective that faith gives us. It keeps us looking forward, even when one door in our lives may close. People without faith, people who do not have faith in God and in his promises, are often looking back, concerned with missed opportunities, regrets about past mistakes, regrets about things that are no long, they no longer have, things that they're no longer able to do. The Bible says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Faith looks forward to a glorious eternal future in full assurance that it will be received. And it doesn't spend time mourning the past. And besides, nostalgia is really not what it used to be. (laughs) People without faith also, if they do look to the future, tend to look to the future with fear instead of hope. And as our society has turned away from God, so actually we see becomes ever more afraid of the future. The word apocalypse is heard a lot these days. We hear about the climate apocalypse. More recently, we hear about the AI apocalypse. The future to people is full of potential, what would the word be, apocalypses? But... uh, Because a society that has turned away from God has nothing else except the here and now, nothing else except what it possesses right now. So naturally, people become ever more afraid, living with that constant fear of losing what we have now, because they think it's all there is. One of the most extreme consequences of this mindset is the growing number of young people who state that they've resolved to never have children because they believe the future is so hopeless. What a contrast between David, who in faith devoted his final years to helping and training the next generation, and those today 
who don't think there should even be a next generation because he was looking ahead with faith. The King David reached a point in his life where he could no longer serve God in the way that he had so effectively for decades, where his identity as the warrior king was suddenly gone. His response was to look to the future, believe by faith that he would continue to bear fruit for God. So what can we do now to ensure that when we reach those same points in our lives, for whatever reason, we will respond in the same way? Well, firstly, we can keep reminding ourselves of the words of that psalm that the righteous are planted in the house of God and are always full of sap, whatever season, whatever circumstance. And those related words of Jesus, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So we need to abide in Christ through his word, through worship, through prayer. And take hold and remember those promises and those truths so that we have them to call upon at any time. And so that we are planted in Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, and therefore continually fruitful. And secondly, we can feed our minds on the word of God and the promises in there of that new heaven, that new earth, that glorious city of God so that we keep looking forward, remembering that right now we're involved in the work of building that glorious city, receiving that glorious inheritance, always advancing the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we stand here this morning planted in you. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, we are a part of that vine. We are connected to your life, connected to your fruitfulness, involved in your works and your purposes. And I thank you that our position as planted in you is totally secure. Lord, it's not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on careers. It's not dependent on jobs. It's not dependent on health. It's not dependent on age. Lord, it is a position that is always a constant, always secure. And that whatever our circumstances, we can bear fruit for you. Lord, I pray, fill our gaze day by day with the hope that you have set before us, with that vision of the glorious city of God that you have prepared. That we are involved in building and constructing. Lord, help every one of us to continue to be fruitful people. Lord, to continue to look for the ways in which we can serve you. Look for the ways in which we can be involved in advancing your kingdom. And Lord, give us the faith, Lord, and the assurance, Lord, that you have prepared so many great things for us to do, Lord. And that you will give us the fruitfulness, you will give us the results. Amen.